Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Mark chapter 10. This is another long chapter. The average chapter in the Bible has 26 verses, but this chapter has twice that. So, uh, And Mark Mark's chapters in, in general are a little longer. So we're not going to be able to say everything we want to say about these verses. We'll have to pick our spots. Let's start reading at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we get a longer version of the Pharisees' question. They ask him if it is lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason. There was a debate among the rabbis in Jesus' day about what constituted grounds for divorce. Conservatives were saying that only sexual immorality constituted grounds for divorce. But there were some liberal rabbis who were saying that if your wife displeased you for any reason, even if she burned your dinner, then you could divorce her. And they have come now to Jesus asking him to weigh in on this contemporary controversy. And he does weigh in. And he sides pretty clearly with the conservatives. Jesus makes it clear that the desire of God is for marriage to be permanent. And the provisions in the Bible about divorce do not express intention. They express a sort of sad permission. Because you are so sinful, some measure of divorce must be permitted. Now, it's, it's too long and too complicated to get into it here as to, well, what are then the conditions for divorce? Jesus sides with the conservative position that was being offered in this debate as to uh, sexual immorality. What does that mean? What does it not mean? I will post a blog on the End of the Word website and also link it through Facebook where we'll deal with this in detail because I realize you can't just say something like this and then move on, but we, we have to move on. And so I'll post an in-depth blog on that that you can find in those couple of places. Now, what is interesting here in this passage is that Jesus affirms in total the Old Testament view of marriage. He, he grounds his view of marriage in Genesis 1-2. to He says, this is what the Bible says. Therefore, the man and the woman are one flesh in marriage and they should stay together. That's what he says. And he grounds what he says in the Old Testament. And that tells us a lot about how Jesus views the Old Testament, and that also tells us a lot about his understanding of marriage. According to Jesus, marriage is between one man 
and one woman, and it is supposed to last forever. That is biblical marriage, and Jesus affirms it as such in this passage. All right, we jump back into the text at verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, most of the scholars that I've read on this passage understand Jesus to be commending an attitude of humility and trust when he points to the example of children. He isn't saying that we should be childish or or crabby after lunch or generally incontinent. He, he is saying that just like children know they are children and know they need help from mom and dad, and just like children trust what mom and dad tell them, so it must be with you. Humility and, and self-suspicion, right? Knowing that you don't know, knowing that you lie to yourself, knowing that your perspective is very limited, knowing that, and therefore trusting yourself less and trusting God more, that is the doggy door of Christian faith. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Just pause there. That's an invitation to think about who Jesus is. All right. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, some people stumble in this passage because it sounds like Jesus is teaching salvation by works. And the Bible is very clear that there is no salvation by works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for example, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's very clear. No one is saved by works. We aren't saved by keeping the commandments. So what in the world is Jesus doing here? And what he's doing, in fact, is taking a shortcut. The fastest way to convince a proud man that he needs to be saved by grace is simply to show him the standard of the law. Jesus says, okay, all right, brother, go ahead and keep all the commandments. Give that a try. Tell me how that's working for you. And this guy actually thinks that he's doing pretty well. Jesus lists a few commandments, and this brother says, check, 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 right? I'm nailing it. I'm hitting it out of the park. I'm building my stairway to heaven. So then Jesus turns up the heat. He says, all right, why don't you go ahead and sell your possessions and give to the poor? Then come, follow me. And right there, at that point, the brother taps out. Jesus has put his finger on this man's idol, and he taps out. And that is the function of the law. Yes, we are saved by grace, but it is the law that shows us the standard of God and that forces us to see our need of a Savior. 
any honest look at the law should result in your being ready to receive what God has done in Christ for your salvation. Now, we don't know if this brother ever put faith in Jesus, but what we do know is that on that day, he lost faith in himself. And that is where you have to start. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Do you see that? Here we're back to grace, right? Jesus says, salvation is impossible for man, but it is possible with God. Therefore, the message of the text is you need to despair of your own efforts and receive by faith what God has done in Christ for you. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So much we could say here. Obviously, one of the things we need to say is that Jesus is not opposed to wealth per se. He's just saying that right now, wealth can be a tremendous barrier to faith. Wealth makes people trust in themselves. Wealth is how a lot of people in this world keep score. And so if you have a lot of money, you assume you're doing pretty well. And when you think you're doing pretty well, that actually puts you pretty far from the doggy door of saving faith. Now, also, we should probably take a minute and explain what Jesus means when he says that if you've left all these things behind, like in a lot of cultures, to to put faith in Jesus Christ is to leave behind your family. I have a friend in India who when he became a Christian, his family basically said, all right, that's it. They were Hindus. They were upper class, upper caste Hindu. And, and they said, that's it. You're done. You're out of our family. This brother literally had to leave his family behind to become a Christian. That's not, that's not a real thing very often in North America, but it's a real thing in a whole bunch of places. And Jesus is saying, understand this. You, you don't actually ever lose anything to follow Jesus. You, you may lose things temporarily, but even now, he says, even now you're going to gain a hundredfold, and this time, he says, houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers. And of course, that's the church. You may be kicked out of your house, but you're going to be welcomed into a whole bunch of others. Your mother might not talk to you, but boy, come to church. My mother will talk to you, right? I mean, there's hundreds of mothers here, hundreds of sisters here, hundreds of brothers here, hundreds of you could You may lose your children, but how many other children are going to look up to you now? So Jesus is saying, you're going to be paid back even in this age, along with persecution. So he always adds that in just to keep it real. And then he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. God's not going to owe you anything, brother or sister, even if you have to lose it all to follow Christ. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and who, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, there's just so much we could say about this passage. My heart, I mean, your heart has to go out to Jesus here. He's telling them about the road. He said, you know, we're going through this road. We're going through the valley of the shadow of death. The, the road to glory passes through suffering, service, and death. And they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what positions will we occupy in the kingdom of God? And you just think, Wow. Wow, how could you still be thinking that way? But they are. And, and it's just a reminder. We need to be reminded that as followers of Christ, we are always going to be more interested in the glory to come than in the suffering we have to go through, than the, the service and the sacrifice we, have, we, we need to put out right now than the prize that lies ahead. We're always, we're always going to be reaching forward. Right now, one of the greatest problems in evangelicalism is this error, this heresy called over-realized eschatology. It's this thing where we, we reach forward to all the promises of glory and we, we sort of name it and claim it and pull it forward now as if we won't have to drink the cup that Jesus drank. Jesus says to the disciples, listen, you're going to drink the cup. You're going to suffer. You're going to have to carry your cross. Just like me, you will enter glory through pain, through suffering, through sacrifice and service. This is the kingdom road, brothers and sisters. And you cannot bypass it. Now, we also probably need to say a little something about the fact that Jesus points to the leaders out there in the culture. And he says, listen, brothers, do not be like them. You see what leadership is like out there in the world. You see it's all about positions and authority and lording it over other people. Don't be like that. It cannot be like that in the kingdom of God. Which, you know, begs the question, then why in the world every time do we go to a Christian conference do they bring business leaders and political leaders and leaders from the world of athletics and entertainment, many of whom are not even saved, to teach us about how to lead? Jesus explicitly says, do not be like them. It shall not be so among you. So how can that be? How do these people end up at our conferences? I don't know, but I sure wish it would stop. Verse 47. They came to Jericho, 
And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, I've been to Jericho. Jericho is a city that sits at the bottom of a very steep hill that leads upward to Jerusalem. You know, all those songs of ascent in the Psalms, they're called Psalms of ascent because you sing them while you're walking up this massive hill towards Jerusalem. I have no idea how people could sing those songs while walking. Maybe it helped them set a reasonable pace. I don't know. All I know is it's a big hill. Now, Jesus has been walking downhill, literally and metaphorically, from Galilee into Judea. Now he's going to turn the corner and begin the long ascent towards Jerusalem and the cross. And before he goes, he gives us a picture of what it means to be saved. Look at what happens in these verses. Jesus says, call him. And he comes, and Jesus opens his eyes, and immediately he begins to follow him. Do you see that? Brother, sister, you aren't saved by following Jesus. You are called, you are touched, you are healed, you are saved so that you can follow Jesus. And that's what this brother does. That's what we see in the text. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Into the Word.